DC Public Library podcast is made possible in part by the Institute of Museum and Library Services and is a production of the labs at DC Public Library. listening to the DC Public Library podcast recorded from the lab's recording studio in the historic modernized Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Library in downtown Washington, D.C. This episode is part of the DC Public Library Presents series, where we present special programming, authors and scholars, or celebrate library observances. I'm your host, Robert LaRose, and I'm a librarian in the labs at DCPL. I'm joined by two of my colleagues at the library who work in the department known as the People's Archive. Um, I'm going to let them introduce themselves and say a little bit about what they do for the library. Thanks, Robert. Uh, My name is Paul Kelly. Um, I'm the Digital Initiatives Coordinator for for People's Archive at DCPL. Um, My job is really to to oversee all elements of uh, digital preservation and digital curation in in the library. And my name is Siobhan Hagen. I am the project manager for the Memory Lab Network at DC Public Library, which is an IMLS that stands for the Institute of Museum and Library Services. Um, That is a national grant project where we are building memory labs based on the DC Public Library model across the United States in public libraries in various communities, both rural and urban. And um, the uh, Memory Lab is a place for basically, it's a physical place where you can digitize and transfer your personal archives like photos, slides, and videos as well. Um, But then also a key component of a Memory Lab is digital preservation skills and classes being brought to the public so that then um, everyone has access to this knowledge of how to preserve your personal archives that are that exist in the digital realm. Well, thank you both for being here. So, Siobhan, you mentioned digital preservation, which is uh, the focus of our conversation today. And Um, Both you and Paul are experts in this field. So I guess to start off, what exactly is digital preservation and why should uh, people listening to this care about it? Well, I think probably a great place to start um, is talking about what preservation is first. Um, So preservation, I think a lot of people probably already have ideas of what that means. Um, and of course, there's various ways to define it. But to, to me, um, it's basically the protection of cultural property or really just any kind of property through activities that minimize the deterioration and damage uh, of that property in order to prevent a loss of content of like information. And it's really to, you know, preservation is there to prolong the existence of something, really. And, um, you know, in order for us to have access to it long term. So 
just adding digital into digital preservation really uh, kind of describes that same activities that work to prolong the life of digital content, right? And I mean, there's also lots of other uh, terms for digital preservation, right, Paul? Like life cycle management, digital curation. That's something maybe you could talk about is like, yeah. and then the stewardship and things like that. I mean, that, yeah, Siobhan's right. There are kind of different terms that are kind of sometimes interchangeable, sometimes not, you know, like digital archiving, digital preservation, digital curation, like you mentioned. Um, I always try to think of digital preservation as sort of like an archiving activity where specific items of data are maintained over time so we can kind of continue to, you know, allow access to them and make sure that they're intelligible. Uh, throughout technological change and obsolescence of whether it's a file format or whether it's a particular kind of player. Like it's a sort of managed set of activities that are never really over where you're constantly reevaluating the work that you've done in order to kind of keep moving forward to ensure that digital material is accessible over time. Um, obviously, we know that the process is never over, but I think most people might not think of it that way. It, it, it actually reminded me of um, that Daft Punk song, Harder, Better, Faster, Stronger. <laughs> Our work is never over. Yes. Um, totally. Yeah. <laughs> Put it on the DigiPrez playlist. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, it seems like only in the last maybe half decade or so, people are really start, like the broader public is really starting to realize that um, digital things, digital objects don't, um, you know, aren't meant to last, just like physical objects are not meant to last. So why are digital objects so fragile? Why do people need to work so hard to protect them? Yeah, I mean, I feel like the, definitely the, the, people pay way more attention and care way more after they've lost something of value. I know that I am also, I include myself in that, um, that I've definitely lost digital files, photos in particular before I got into archiving or anything. And I just remember being devastated because um, it was like years of my life. And I also like to document things. Um, so I think that that's probably added because so much of our lives now, I mean, exist in they were born digital, which is a term that might seem a little weird, but um, that just means that they, you know, it, it didn't, there was no analog or physical paper copy or VHS recording. You know, it was originally recorded as a digital file. Um, so that's, that's where so much more of our lives now that we've all had smartphones for at least, I mean, most people have had smartphones for at least like 10 15 years now. Yeah. Um, when did so, iPhone come out? Like 2007. Something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, um, yeah, that's, I think that that's, that's personally, I feel like that's spurred a lot within the personal archiving realm. But then also, I feel like there's been a lot more academics um, who study like um, archive, archiving and information science that are realizing too that there's like it's very important for us to focus on not just the big 
uh, archives, you know, it's like, yes, obviously Library of Congress National Archives really important. Um, we need to preserve these very important things and artworks at the Museum of Modern Art and all these, you know, bigger places. But there's been a lot more push, especially recently, um, for people to realize the importance of personal archiving and community archives in, in the smaller uh, smaller places that have voices and that have archives and have, you know, preservation needs um, that shouldn't be um, left out of having that kind of like um, access to that information. So, Paul, I don't know. I haven't really talked about why, why what makes digital files at risk. Well, I mean, before diving into that, I mean, one thing that came to mind while you were talking is that, you know, I, I tend to think of myself, and I think most uh, people in digital preservation land in libraries uh, think of themselves as kind of pretty well versed in this, pretty good at this kind of thing on an institutional level. But in my personal life, like, I am bad at this. Like, mm -hmm. I, I, Me too. I don't take care of my, my stuff the way that I should. Um, just like everybody else, like I'm constantly buying more storage to like more cloud storage for my phone. I'm like forgetting to back up my phone. I have all these, all these photographs of my kid that it could just like disappear if I drop my phone in the toilet, you know, mm -hmm. which is a thing that I've done. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's why the work that Siobhan is doing is so important. Like not just for people that are supposedly professionals at this, but you know, just for everyone, really. Um, and in terms of, like, the, the inherent fragility of digital materials, a, a lot of them are honestly um, more fragile than their analog counterparts. You could take a photograph, you could take a book and sit it on a shelf in the right conditions, and for, for the most part, it's going to be okay. Whereas, like, we've already passed the, the shelf life for many kinds of digital carriers, like the expected... Uh, I mean, a lot of these carriers like floppy disks, hard drives are like nearing end of life. You know, these, and they've only been around since the 80s. That's only like 40 years. That's not a long time. And, and I, I think that the re one of the reasons that digital preservation is such an urgent concern is that people don't really realize that if something's digital, it's kind of viewed as being a forever thing, but we all kind of know and are more and more realizing as a culture that it, that, that isn't the case. Yeah, none of these technologies are ever marketed with the intent for it to last a long time. Mm -hmm. so there's no real way for people to know that unless they dig a little deeper and do some research on how stuff, how their, how its lifespan plays out. Yeah, and I, I think also it can be really daunting to even try and do that research on your own, even if you are, if you if you have that kind of motivation to do it, and then you try and um look up maybe like the lifespan of gold archival you know discs like optical discs so like let's say because i know a lot of the a lot of those out they have been made like their manufacturers have marketed them as lasting for thousands of years and and um and being an archival standard and things like that so there can be whereas uh that's not the best practice for digital preservation for several reasons, which we could talk about more later, but it's one of those things where you might come up against this other information that, you know, it's hard to discern what is, um, 
an ad, what's, uh, you know, marketing, what's true. And then if you happen to find one of the studies that, you know, has looked into how long these, these discs actually last, then it might get too, uh, technical and scientific for someone. So that's, um, I think that's where we have a really unique opportunity in public library land to bridge that gap and kind of help get through to the, um, like, what do you really need to know? And what's actually going to um, work, you know, like, yeah, because there are what we call best practices for preservation in general, but for digital preservation. Um, and those best practices are just an ideal to kind of work towards and they can get really like you can take a look at them and then feel paralyzed by them. Like, I can't ever do that. So you're not going to do anything. I think that's another thing that makes um, digital preservation so kind of at risk. Uh, so that's another thing that, um, you know, I think that Paul and I could both talk about is scaling back. Like, you don't, you know, getting to good practices, not necessarily the best. Yeah, we're we're here as the public library. We're here to, I guess, give it to people in an honest way and um, a manageable way. Them. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, to make an informed decision. That's like my main, like, we'll give you the info um, and then you can decide for yourself what you're going to do. And Siobhan, you also mentioned earlier about um, how a big part of digital preservation is uh, giving voice to communities that might not have been represented as much before. It's kind of like a, a renewed interest in ethnography, in a way. Mm -hmm. It's really mm -hmm. closely tied to digital preservation. Yeah, and I love also uh, this, even taking a step further of giving the power to the people. Like, it's not even about documenting someone else. It's just about giving someone the power to document themselves. Yeah, and, um, it's not the institutions. Yeah. yeah, not the institutions coming in and documenting them, but letting it, it's letting it grow organically from the community. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned best practices. Why don't we uh, dig into those a little bit and start talking about how they can be used by the average person? Sure. Yeah. The um, the first thing I always say, like <laughs> before. Um, we talk about best practices is just to say like, you know, these are once again, like the ideals. So take, take that for what it's worth. And kind of like, I always talk about best practices and then say how I'm not living up to them, you know, that kind of thing. Um, just mm -hmm. to show like it is, it is reality, but then also like, these are going to like, they're, you can talk about best practices and like concepts of digital preservation and like the, the more like the theory of it all. And then those like concepts will, they, they won't change. Like that is the thing that stays the same about digital preservation. But it's important to remember that just like technology, um, the, the ways that you then like implement the concepts that those tools are going to change regularly because new software comes out because a new operating system will, you know, get updated. Um, 
and or like something's not going to be supported anymore. It's just, it's much, it's a very like fast changing world, um, especially when dealing with digital files. I don't know if you want to talk about that a little bit, Paul. I mean, I can talk about this kind of thing more from the perspective, like the institutional perspective of the, uh, the library, I guess, and what, and how we try to approach it. Mm -hmm. Um, we approach digital preservation from a, a couple of different perspectives. Um, I mean, we're constantly trying to balance what's possible in the moment within the institutional constraints that we have and always kind of measuring what we can do against our, our ideal scenario, or like Siobhan said, those uh, those best practices. Um, and we've already mentioned this, and Siobhan will probably echo this again, like digital preservation is never really something that's done. So it's sort of like a cycle where we're always reevaluating as technology improves and also as those institutional priorities shift. And those priorities might have to do with donor relations. They might have to do with budget concerns. It could be a, a variety of things. Um, it's similar to yeah. individual constraints, you know. In, indeed, yeah. Space available, resources, relying on other people for help. So I think most yeah. people, it's things that people can relate to. For sure. I mean, do we want to maybe talk about some of the, the stages of what we actually try and do, Siobhan? Yeah, because I think that that is, uh, you know, as archivists, I feel like we like to um, put things into categories we and sure like do. <laughs> of information <laughs> and color code things. And yeah, um, so uh, the and this is the thing, too, like where it's not not to say like, you know, we can go through these concepts sort of as a list. But once again, like Paul said, it's more of a cycle. It's, it's yeah, there are cer certain things you can kind of do first, but I'm, I don't mean to say these things as like a step-by-step -step process because it's all what you're always going to be going back and redoing something or adding and, um, or, you know, reevaluating. That's an important part of, of the whole thing. It's like exercising, you know, we have to like, and eating healthy, like we have to constantly um, be having these good digital preservation habits um on the regular so just add it to your routine exactly your daily yes. or monthly um, or yearly routine mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. put it on the calendar uh so the the first that i would talk about um because that's a it's an it's an easy way to start um is to identify what um content what digital content you have and that is i think actually where people can get it's like right out of the gate, you can get kind of really overwhelmed because I know I've got a work laptop. I've got a, you know, personal laptop. I've got two personal laptops actually. And you know, like one from 2008 and then uh, I've got external hard drives, you know, CDs, DVDs, um, old phones, lots of old phones. Uh, so that can get, overwhelming pretty quickly to set out and just be like, Oh, well, what, what do I have? Do I have copies of this already? Um, what do I have? That's like already been duplicated. What can I get rid of? Um, and that's sort of talking about what the next concept is, which is selection. Uh, and that's why it's, there's a lot of like overlap with these concepts, but uh -huh. um, you know, the, be the best way to really start planning is to know what you have. And that's where identifying um, what you have, how many files, you know, what 
type of media, how many videos do you have? Like I, I'm a video person. I like to take lots of videos and I have for years. So I have a lot of video. Um, and that's larger, you know, in the file sizes are just larger than photos, let's say. So that's gonna, that's gonna really factor majorly into my preservation planning needs. So yeah, the, uh, the best way to, I like inventory, um, your digital files really is just to create a, an, an Excel to, for, for personal archiving, Paul. I don't know, um, how you might want to talk about it for, uh, what is done in the people's archive, but mostly it's just like having a spreadsheet with all of this information about your personal digital archive. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's similar in some ways what the library does to the personal level, but different in others. Um, I mean, just to kind of walk through it, um, when material is transferred to us, and when I say transfer, that can mean a couple of things. That could either mean a donor is transferring physical custody of like a hard drive to us, or it could be like the act of us transferring digital files into one of our repositories, one of our uh, management systems. Um, we always try to create a record of that, and we try to create a record of everything that we do with uh, with the materials that we have. Um, so we could be talking about something like creating an accession record when something comes in. Um, like Siobhan mentioned, a basic spreadsheet inventory of what you have, you know, documenting things like where the material came from, what kind of carrier it's on, whether it's a floppy disk, a hard drive, a flash drive. Um, you might want to have a file list or, you know, the document the volume of the material and in terms of file size, like gigabytes or terabytes, so you can manage your storage. Uh, those are the kind of things that we document straight off the bat. Um, the other ways that we handle identification are a little bit more computationally driven. You know, the systems that we use that DigDC is built on and that are digital preservation system of the future that is built on has functionality that helps us identify file types that are ingested. Uh, we using something called a format registry, which is sort of like a an authoritative online database of file types. We can generate uh, text files that show you the the kind of structure of files and directories and whatever you're trying to bring into your your system. Um, we scan materials for publicly or personally identifiable information like social security numbers, credit card numbers, phone numbers that we might want to redact before making it available. There's lots of things that we do to kind of not only identify at a high level, but also at a, a really granular level. And, you know, we're, we're very good at some of that, not so good at other parts of it. Um, yeah, there are a lot of moving parts there. Yeah. And, and that whole idea of like um, getting at least, I mean, I feel like when we're in the digital uh, realm of things and as opposed to like physical paper kind of files. Um, I feel like that is at least where some, there is some pro, there's like a pro there where we can use computers to automate some of this work for us. Um, so there is, uh, but of course, like also you have to have a certain skill level of computers to do some of and utilize some of these tools, which is also why with the memory lab at DC Public Library and the and the memory lab network, I try if we're if we ever recommend like a tool uh, to help you in any of these digital preservation concepts, 
it's usually like we've tested it out and, and it's got a, what some, they call a GUI, a graphical user interface. So it's, it's not sort of that, like what looks like, you know, terminal hacking, like matrixy looking kind of stuff. Um, it's more like nice buttons that you click that, um, make, that is basically doing all that work on the, on the other end. Um, but that like kind of is just more user friendly for folks that don't have that kind of background in computers, uh, and that can get overwhelmed pretty quickly. And that's where, you know, like for the inventory and pretty much any part of this, like using what you're familiar with, at least with the personal archiving, like, um, and I think I would also say if you're in a smaller organization trying to figure out, um, you know, your digital preservation, like starting out with what you have and what you're familiar with is a good place to start. Like you can level up from there. Um, and it's always about taking one more step towards better practices. And so that's where, you know, sure, get started. If you want to get started and you know how to use Excel, like use Excel, um, and just be consistent and, and, um, and, you know, you decide what the level of detail is for you and what you can do. But there is also, there's some tools out there that can help you, um, kind of automate this. Uh, like there's this thing called file list creator that, um, basically like scans, uh, and it's, it's definitely more, it has a GUI and like is, is more, um, user friendly. Um, but it basically just spits out, you know, an Excel or a CSV file, which is another type of so, you know, comma separated values. So information. So that's where, um, and you can like have it spit out like all of this information about your files, um, stuff that you might not even understand. So, or you can have it be, you know, less, you just, you tell it what to give, what to do for you. Uh, and you can kind of just like set it to go and then walk away. So that's, I feel like that's a, at least a pro with digital files is you can, there might be thousands of them. You might have thousands of them, but you can, use computers to help you manage them. Is that a free software file list creator? It is. Yeah. That's, that's another uh, of my like criteria for something that I try and mention for the memory lab is either it's free or it has a free option, you know, and then you just have to like look at ads or at least the minimal free option is like what the tool is, what we're really trying to use it for. So yeah, that one is free. And this is something that we would probably talk about a little later with, um, you know, farther down in the, the cycle. Mm -hmm. But um, you sort of alluded to it earlier about recording what you are doing. I mean, in addition to recording information about your files and choosing what information you want to have represented in the inventory you know, obviously you're not going to be around forever. Probably you won't be around as long as your files will last. Right. Yeah. So you want to document what, <laughs> what you do for the next person in your family or whoever carries on your work after you're unable to. Yes, absolutely. That's so important. The, that so along this, this, the cycle, like the whole thing, everything should be, I, you know, documented. And I mean, this is just, a, I just think this is good advice for literally anyone in any work or job that you're doing, even if it's just a, per, you know, it's your personal archives, that, but it for artists too, um, regularly, like you should be documenting 
what software you used, you know, what version of it, what operating system, if you want people to be able to recreate what you were doing or just to fully understand um, how you made things and in what environment. Um, and then uh, because we're going to forget these things, it's, I mean, I have to literally write down everything. So, um, but even if it's just for succession planning too, like, okay, I, I know that I want my Facebook to, you know, go away as soon as I die. So you need to like put that into, you need to, you just have to like make a motion toward that. You have to be like, okay, like I have to go into Facebook and I have to click this button that says like, no, it's just going to go away when I'm gone. And then instead of, cause I mean, not everybody wants their kids to have access to their Facebook or their social media or every part of um, their personal lives. So that's where it's the same kind of thing. You need to make that legacy planning. Um, and it might feel a little morbid, but it's, uh, I think it's just like a good, it's just a good practice in general. And especially because you're going to forget things too. Like I like to write things down. Absolutely. Like, and once again, it's my personal archives. Like I did this way later than I probably should have, but like I name each of my hard drives and I have at least a little list that just says, okay, these are where my home movies are. At least I know which hard drives it's on. Like, that and maybe that's it. Maybe that's all you're like. I know where my home movies are. That's all I care about. Um, you know that sort of uh, and and write it out if you don't want to do an Excel spreadsheet or a CSV file. Then you can just use a text file, like a very standard text file, and just kind of write these things out and like what you did uh, or how you want them to be, uh, and just save them on your desktop or something like that. Yeah, whatever works best for you. I mean, I feel like even in working um, in digital environments so much, I feel like personally what works for me is using digital technology to do things in a very analog way. So mm -hmm. you don't have to use these tools, these technological tools to their uh, full power. Just use it however it works for you. Yes, exactly. And just also try and think about, yeah, what if you're, what are you storing in your head that you could potentially put either in the file name or in your, um, which we can talk more about file names in a little bit and how to make a good one, but what, what can you get out of your head? Like, and, and make, and just kind of write down, um, that imagine that, you know, a stranger is coming in, like taking a look and trying to figure this out and work like backwards. Like I see people do inventories and then they color code things and then they don't write down what their color coding scheme means. And that, that can get really, that's gonna, I mean, I forget what my color coding scheme is sometimes. So just write everything down. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Writing things down is a, a perfectly acceptable method of like managing your stuff 100%. Mm -hmm. Like an analog approach is still an approach and it's, uh, it's not nothing. Right. And, and anyone can do it. Anyone can do it. Yeah, absolutely. So another, like, as I, I mentioned, the next, uh, sort of concept that we talk about, um, is selection. So, you know, you, you've kind of figured out everything that you have and, um, written, written it down in one way or another. Um, to one level of detail or another, but then you have to like take that and figure out what and select from that what you want to preserve really 
what should be preserved and maybe when it, it's going to be preserved. Do you want everything to be preserved in perpetuity? I, I know from my personal archives, no, that's not true. Like I don't need everything to be every, you know, email account I've ever had or photo or screenshot I've taken, like does not need to be preserved in perpetuity. So um, I don't, if anyone has ever just sat there going through their phone and real and looking and being like, Oh my gosh, I have so many pictures of my shoes accidentally, uh, or, you know, or I don't need that many pictures of my dog. Not really of the same exact thing over and over. Um, yeah. Then you'll see that that can get like really overwhelming, um, pretty quickly because we just, especially now, once again, you know, if you've had a smartphone for a while that had, a camera, then you're um, got several years worth to potentially go through to select. Yeah, I uh, I have I'm like that, but with uh, voice memos, audio recordings. Mm, I'm, I'm yes. very much being a musician. I'm very much focused on audio and having like an audio scrapbook. Um, oh, I've I've had to offload tons of apps on my phone because my audio files just take over the storage on the phone. So I would yeah. imagine a lot of people are in that same boat with videos and photos too. I'm sure. Totally. And that's where, yeah, totally different depending on what your, your favorite type of media is. And also like, yeah, how much storage you have on your phone? Do you have it backed up? You know, all those things, which is also like very resource intensive once again, which is what the world is run. You know, that what is what makes the world go around is um, what, access to resources you have. So that, and that's a thing that maybe, maybe people, maybe I take for granted more is that not, I sort of very early on in my archival career accepted very easily that not everything should be preserved, you know, um, not everything can be preserved, but then also not everything should be preserved. Um, so that's something that I think is an important idea to embrace. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely echo that actually. Um, the question of, you know, should everything be preserved? Um, and it, it's never usually for me like a yes or no answer. It's usually a, a yes, but to what degree, at least in terms of the materials that the library has. Um, because the, the workflows are kind of different for stuff that might just be for, say, reference purposes for the public or if we're talking like a, a high value digital asset that might not be for the public, but is important to the library institutionally, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I could throw up a couple of examples there, but, um, like what I mean. So, I mean, for example, we have a lot of, uh, newspapers, digital newspapers, and those are kind of the files themselves are scans of old microfilm, which itself is a scan of of a physical object so they you know they honestly don't look that great but um they are in our public access system dig vc and people can look at those and you know they're informationally rich and the information is preserved right but uh we have we have other materials that are that for one reason or another we we cannot make publicly available mostly due to copyright reasons um a lot of this is usually like high quality audio and video and the way we treat that stuff is just frankly different because the considerations are different. Um, I mean, they're often stored in systems that 
kind of don't have access layers in terms of like having a player for you to view them natively in your browser, but you can go in and, you know, see a lot of the information that was generated when they were ingested. You know, we, we talked a lot about documenting whatever it is you do to whatever it is you have. Um, when we ingest something into our, our preservation system, metadata is generated at every, every step of the process. So anything that happens to that file, whether it's, uh, you know, whether we change the format to a more preservation friendly format, i.e. something that isn't proprietary and locked into a certain, certain software, um, whether it's something like that, whether it's changing file names, uh, whatever it is we do is, is documented. So the, the considerations for preservation are very different. They're, about letting people know what you did down the line. Whereas for newspaper type content, like, you know, Washington City paper, like the Washington Blade, is more just about getting the content in front of eyeballs and letting people use it and be excited by it and, you know, do what they will and be able to see it right there in front of them. There's a inherent uh, difference in media there too, where you've got newspapers that can be um, OCR'd ideally like that, you know, and, and basically have their, the text be turned into something that's keyword searchable. Right. And so therefore it's has much more access possibilities. Whereas with audio and video, it's much harder to do that. I mean, you can do transcripts obviously for like oral histories. We have transcripts, um, that to takes search so much time. Yeah, once again, like AB, yeah, you're it's telling me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, Paul, you mentioned a lot of things like metadata and file naming and uh, file formats that really take us into the next step. So, you identify what you have, you select what you're going to save. Now, how, where are you going to put it? How are you mm -hmm. going to store it? And those things metadata file naming are certainly involved in that. Um, and don't forget to document as you go what your selection process is. So, you know, so yeah. you say like, okay, in five years, and this is, write it down, like we do have an example of a retention, it's quote unquote retention schedule, like write down, okay, you know what, I'm going to delete my tax files after X amount of years because whatever the IRS, right? Like those kinds of things, like things that you feel like, oh, I can delete them eventually. Write down when you're going to delete them, you know, and then, and then follow through. So just to be the constant, like, don't forget to write it down, document, document, document. Yeah, it takes a lot of, uh, it, it does take a lot of discipline, but the more mm -hmm. you do it, you'll, the more you'll get used to it. Mm -hmm. It's like developing a, a good habit. Yes, exactly. And it's and use things to help you. So put it in your calendar. Like that's, you know, like have a reminder pop up. Um, but yeah, storage is storage is a huge topic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So like, let's say somebody has something in a format. You know, it's a born digital object. That's, it's in a format that is not the best for preservation purposes. What should they do? I mean, I guess the, the official digital preservation answer is that they should <clears throat> migrate it in some way to a format that um, maintains the what are known as the significant properties of that object. Um, 
very briefly to describe what that means. That's kind of the properties that make, say, an audio file, an audio file or an image, an image or an email, an email. So let's say you you migrate your video file and you end up with an audio only bit stream, like you've not preserved that file significant properties. And you ideally want to do that in a sort of platform and software agnostic way. So that, that I mean, it can work on any software or platform. Correct. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So not just Windows Media Player, <laughs> like right? <laughs> you want something that can play in QuickTime in Windows Media Player, hopefully. Although there's like one type of file that works on that. Um, versus or like iTunes that automatically converts your files to an Apple native format. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So I mean that that's what we try to do with anything we uh we ingest into any of our systems, and if it's I mean we try to make sure that it's already in an open format when we accept that material. But uh, if it isn't, we, we usually switch it over, migrate it, but always kind of make note of what we did, both kind of manually in our accession records, but also, again, our systems automatically create a record and timestamp and all things like that when a change is made. So we can always kind of, we can always roll something back if we need to, if say technology improves and there's like a better way to migrate something, we can go back to the original file in most cases and kind of redo some of those processes in a more modern way. That's a really good point. The yeah. backwards compatibility sort of idea. Um, can we go over real quick, like what a digital object is? I know sometimes we, it's like if we say a file versus a, a digital file versus a digital object, I know that that might sound like they're interchangeable, but in digital so, preservation land, they're... I mean, it's weird. They, they can't, they honestly can be interchangeable, but when, when we kind of talk about them, like you said, in digital preservation land, a digital object, you know, there, there are two different ways of kind of thinking about it. There can be... A digital object that sort of exists on its own, which might be just your image file and might just be your video file or what have you. But, um, you know, the, these objects can also be packaged with other objects, you know, like packaging an image file with its metadata, packaging a video file with its metadata, things like that. So it starts, yeah. What is metadata? What is What's metadata? Metadata? <laughs> <laughs> data about data. Hey. Um, there we go. <laughs> so, I mean, at a very basic level, I mean, what, what Siobhan already mentioned at the, the top of the hour about um, creating a file list. I mean, a file list is metadata. It's like it's documenting in a structured way what you have, sort of external to the thing that you're describing. Paul, I, I think, forgive me if I'm wrong, but I think I remember hearing this from you talking about metadata in a really nice poetic way it's basically like a love letter to the future oh yeah that's that's a that's a quote that uh, i stole from a former co-worker who stole it from uh someone that works for the internet archive who really know their metadata um yeah originally from a guy called jason scott i think look him up he, he's a good twitter account mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So basically meaning that you're you know you you care enough about this file to make sure that people in the future will be able to glean the same meaning from it that you got exactly exactly 
or even be able to kind of, you know, you're, you're, you're documenting what you were able to at the time. Um, and again, metadata doesn't have to be the static thing. It can be something that in the future someone uses to kind of reevaluate what was done and either start from scratch or build upon it or, but yeah, it's, it's just, it's so important to be able to see the, the sort of chain that an object went through before it ended up in your lap. So that's, that's why we create metadata. It isn't just so someone can like read a nice description of, of a photograph. It's, it's so much more than that. It's really about the, the long-term management and of these kind of objects and ensuring that they can continue to be used and importantly reused and used in different ways, like yeah. ways that we maybe haven't even thought of yet. Yeah. Exactly. I think that that's something to, to kind of push a little bit, especially with personal archives. I think that people maybe don't think about it as much as like, it's really hard to think about future users uh, of your stuff. Like, and that is something I think you should try at least to think about like, who future users are going to be and who, how they're going to be maybe trying to access your files because then you can try and, and answer those questions, but also realize that you're not going to be able to answer the exact questions. So that's why we have these suggestions and best practices because at least then if you have all this metadata and you, you know, document all this, then there's at least that love letter to the future you know, whatever future uh, person that's going to be looking at it, then they can, um, if you follow these, at least most of these best practices, like there's a higher probability that it doesn't matter what video player they have. Um, you know, it's because it's in at least this certain, you have this much information about it that they can like make it happen on their end in, in the future utopian mm -hmm. world. Whatever, um, whatever that may be. Right. But, um, yeah. And then like, when you say like ingest, what, what do you mean by that? Like, you know, we've got transferring and we've got ingesting. I mean, so we don't really have a ton of time to, to dive into things like conceptual life cycles of digital objects and things like that. But when we use words like transfer, uh, that, that's language pulled directly from something called the open archival, um, information system. Yeah, OAI, and the acronym is OAIS. Um, and transfer is one of the stages in that system. I think it's the first stage. Um, so that's where that language comes from. But we tend to use the word ingest when it comes to, you know, just the act of taking a package of files, you know, the, you know, preservation masters and associated metadata, either descriptive or technical or whatever it is that you have, and just kind of uploading them. I mean, I know that's just throwing in another word, ingest, <laughs> upload, what have you, but I mean... I think more people understand the concept of uploading probably than... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's like a decent way to sort of... It, it's not like an exact analog, but it's a good way to sort of demystify the idea. I mean, yes. it's like adding an attachment to your email. Mm -hmm. You know, when you add an attachment to your email, it just looks like you're kind of dragging and dropping something. But there's a whole bunch of things going on behind the scenes that none of us see to make that happen. So that's sort of like the the process of ingest. Um, and once something is ingested in our digital preservation systems, we can then sort of move it through all the different 
all the other stages of that OAIS lifecycle model that we talked about. And a lot of those stages are sort of analog to the stages we've already discussed of like identify, select, store, manage. Um, and then like the, the access side of things is usually the, I know I said it's a cycle, but that's sort of the, the end point, you know, even though the cycle continues forever in the background. Mm -hmm. And I mean, like, that's where I feel like it's the story of digital preservation where there's, there's so many terms, terminology that, that can get, um, uh, very confusing. And I think demystifying, that's a great way to describe, like trying to do, trying to do that work because there's so much to demystify. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, it's tough. It's tough to just do it in an hour or whatever, like, um, you know, cause it, it is, there's only so much information you can like digest at once too. Um, yeah. And like using things like conceptual models in professional spaces, I mean, it, it's at once very useful because it sort of ensures that an archivist from one institution is speaking the same technical language as someone on the other side of the world, right? But it can also be like very, very intimidating and kind of whether intentionally or not kind of excluding the people that feel like they perhaps don't have the technical skill. Um, mm -hmm. And very often I found that that's just a perception that they have, but it's not actually true. Like this is actually much more approachable than most people might think. You just kind of have to get over that initial hump and have someone, someone there that you can ask about it. And that's kind of what the, um, the library tries to, at least Siobhan's side of the work tries to provide. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. To, to absolutely like empower people that they can do this or, you know, they can do par parts of it at least um, and don't have to just like throw up their hands and, and give up. And um, I mean, we're kind of like in the midst of this thought of storage. And this is also like, how, um, you know, how do you then, this is one area that I've, I've been struggling with myself of like, how do, what do I tell folks? Like where, you know, it's easy for me to tell them, best practices for your, you know, you bring in a VHS to the memory lab and you digitize it. And I mean, best practices really is to do an uncompressed MOV file. I think, you know, like that, like the highest resolution. Um, and there's your preservation format that you need to then store three copies of geographically disperse those copies. And this is more part of the other concept of like protection, but like have uh, checksums there to verify the integrity of the file every, all, every so often. And then it's just like, and then I'm speaking gibberish and like it's, and who has time for that either? Uh, even if you understand all those concepts, like who has time for that? I, I don't. And I, you know, like, and so that's where, you know, we at the memory lab, we've definitely pushed more like, hey, an MP4, a high quality MP4 is a, that that is, for personal archiving like that is a very very good option for your preservation master for personal archives and then from there it's like but where where then what do we tell people everyone wants to know like what's the best storage what cloud storage companies should i use and you know we can't necessarily like evaluate vendors of cloud storage 
Um, it's all about teaching the concepts of like, how do you evaluate a cloud storage vendor? What are the problems of a cloud storage vendor? Um, you know, how much control do you want to have? What kind of money do you have to pay someone, you know? So that's where personally, I kind of lean more towards just telling folks to have multiple external hard drives <laughs> uh, because I'd like to have control. But also like, obviously, I'm gonna t if they want to sit there and listen to me talk about cloud storage companies, I will also talk to them about that and the risks of that. But honestly, if they if people want to talk to me about putting their, their stuff on DVDs, I, I kind of shut down a little bit. I'm, I'm working on it because... Basically, don't store. I just, if you want an access copy of your home movies that's on a DVD because you like to watch it on your TV and you have a DVD player hooked up, I think that's great. But I would do not count that as a preservation copy, um, mostly because you now have this physical medium that you have to have a working DVD drive and or optical drive in order, which is what a DVD is, an optical disc. Uh, you have to have that to be able to, to read the information on there. And even though the companies say that they last for thousands or even hundreds of years, like they studies show that, that that's not really necessarily clear. Uh, and so it's just adding more problems. Whereas I feel like you have an external hard drive with a USB three connection, let's say, and sure you might have to buy an adapter because Mac is making like, weird other little, you know, uh, inputs for their computers and whatnot, but no laptop or computer, mostly none of them come with optical drives anymore. So I really feel like that is just going the way of the dinosaur. And I want folks to start getting comfortable with this idea of having digital files, um, and not like holding on to this physical thing, um, and sort of making that their focus. Yeah. From, from a, Preservation perspective, a DVD is essentially the same as a VHS tape mm -hmm. at this mm -hmm. point. Mm -hmm. So, ops becoming, well, yeah, I guess it basically is obsolete at this point. Um, In my book, it is. Yeah, the physical <laughs> medium. You really, you really unpacked a lot of stuff there. <laughs> um, yeah, my, my little rant. Yep. The, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's important to hear about like a library or institutional perspective. Um, but I think a lot of people will find parallels in their own collections. And the bottom mm -hmm. line is it's an ongoing thing. And another thing to throw out there is is also like you got to think about uh, the software it's going to be playing back in or reading it in. So I think a lot of people like to think about the early word processing uh, software out there that you know, you might have a document that then years later, you got your floppy and you're transferring it over, um, but you don't have anything to open it in. Um, so that's something, you know, that obviously, this is why we tell you, this is why the file formats that we recommend are recommended now to be opened in as many players or readers as possible. But that's not going to be the case for forever. So you need to keep checking back with your memory lab or your, you know, your local archive being like, Hey, is an MP4 still the way to go? This wave file that I have, how's, how's that doing? You know? And thankfully, uh, I think there are a number of online resources that talk about recommended file formats, which yes. put in the, uh, the episode description. Well, we uh, we talked about basically all of the concepts involved 
in the digital preservation cycle, you know, identify, select, store. Um, we touched on manage a little bit. Was there anything else that you wanted to say to kind of tie all of this together? Yeah, I mean, in terms of long-term management of uh, materials that are sort of in our digital repository, we it's, it's difficult to talk about it without touching on the things that you purposely said you didn't want to talk about, like, you know, check some generation. So, like, ensure integrity of a bitstream from, you know, across time and between, you know, transferring between one one place and another. You know, making sure that the file that you upload ends up looking the same as it did before you uploaded it. Again, stuff like file name normalization. Sometimes you can upload a bunch of files that contain an illegal character. Um, our systems can remove that illegal character and document the change. But I think a, a really a, a bigger point is really the the notion of preservation planning. You know, you're not just throwing this stuff into a black box and forgetting about it. We're, we're sort of trying to get better at using tools that will tell us when an action needs to be performed. I mentioned earlier the idea of integrating our systems with what's known as a format registry that can, I mean, those kind of systems can, can tell you when a file format that you happen to have has officially being rendered obsolete and you need to do something about that which you know would probably involve migration again um all, all of these kinds kind of tasks are touched upon by dcpl in like some way or another but um again the, the eternal caveat we're we're not perfect and we're always trying to get better but um the the long-term management is really the the kind of biggest long-term problem in terms of dealing with with digital preservation absolutely yeah um and then i mean all of this is to provide access to it i mean you know like to, for especially yes personal archives you want to have access you want to have access you want your uh whoever you pass your personal archives down to you want them to have access but like for people's archive it's such it's a such an important part of the mission, providing access to these digital files, right? It sure is. Yeah, it's a it's a lot of work, a lot of work, and I just, um, but it's it's really important to just start and start doing something. Um, I can't like uh, reiterate that enough. That even if it's just a little baby step, each baby step is good and gonna get you closer and leveling up to having a better digital preservation cycle. Well, is there anything else you want to just final words to, to add? We said we would, we would mention the three, two, one rule. Uh, so I don't want to leave anybody hanging in case they're like, what, what is the three, two, one rule? Um, this is also a part of, so st part of the storage, but part of the protection of your personal archives. Um, so this is where you make three copies use two different types of media for those copies and then store one copy at least at least one away physically away from the other so an example of this would be if you had two copies of your files stored on external hard drives and i also like to add into the mix like buy two external hard drives that are from different manufacturers so maybe one that's made by seagate and one made by toshiba and then um, you'd have like a third copy 
that is stored in the, maybe in the cloud, maybe you have it stored in the cloud somewhere. So, um, you know, it's important to note that social media is not a storage medium. That is, so you're, if you're using Facebook to store, to have an archive of your photos, that is not going to work because they automatically compress things, uh, and take away information and resolution without your, most likely without your knowledge. So not a storage medium that I wanted to kind of reiterate. And another thing that you could do is have, you know, two copies on external hard drives, one on your computer, and then your computer is, is, and one of those hard drives are located at your house, but you store another one at a relative, in a relative's closet, or maybe you swap with a friend just because if you have everything in your house or your apartment and there's a flood or some other sort of like disaster, always, always assume, you know, that there could be a disaster and plan for that. And that can be a physical disaster as well as one of just a hard, a hard drive crashing and not being able to work anymore. But physically, if, if, you know, your hard drive and your computer, um, are flooded with water or fire, what, what will you do? Where's your backup? So th- that's the three, two, one rule. And I mean, it's, that's good for personal archiving for, uh, like the people's archive. I know that, that there's even more that is done. Um, but at, at least for personal archiving, this is going to give you a lot more options and a lot more safety should something happen. Yeah. And I mean, while the, while people's archive technically does more than that, I mean, the, the principle is the same. I'm not mm-hmm. going to like go into a list of where everything is stored, but the, the same principles apply, you know, mm-hmm. of having multiple copies and, and keeping them separate. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like the yeah. key takeaways. Yeah. So we, we, we definitely discussed a lot of, uh, information here. But if you should have any other questions about anything regarding digital preservation or about using the memory lab at, uh, the MLK Memorial Library, which unfortunately is still closed to the public, we can put our, uh, both the labs and the People's Archives contact information in the episode notes so that you can contact us about any questions or additional questions you have. And we do uh, regularly, we're doing virtual programming as well. We do, we have, we've done a digital preservation 101 that gets very into these details. So, um, you know, you could also maybe sign up for the newsletter, people's archive newsletter to get notified of when those classes are happening. You can do that on the People's Archive webpage, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'd also encourage everyone to actually go and check out the digital content that we have that is publicly available. So that's at digdc.org. And we also have a lot of, uh, we didn't really talk about this, but a lot of uh, web archive content, archived websites that are publicly available. Um, and you can find those at archiveit.org slash home slash dcpl. We can put those links in the uh, the episode notes. Cool. You can find them. Well, thank you both so much for being here today and talking about all this stuff. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, thanks, Robert. It was fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Always uh, ready for some digital preservation rants. Anytime. <laughs> yeah, indeed. <laughs> Unfortunately, the labs are still closed to the public due to challenges posed by COVID-19. 
However, we have a number of upcoming virtual events which you can find out about by visiting bit.ly forward slash labs classes. You can also sign up to receive email updates about the labs by going to bit.ly slash labs dash email. To learn about additional virtual programs being offered by DCPL at large, visit dclibrary.org forward slash calendar. You have just listened to an episode of DC Public Library Presents on DC Public Library Podcast, recorded from the Labs Recording Studio in the historic, modernized Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Library in downtown Washington, D.C. Thank you for listening, and please be sure to join us next time. You just tuned into DC Public Library Podcast. Listen and subscribe at dcplpodcast.simplecast.com or wherever podcasts are available. Send us your comments at DCPL on Twitter or follow us at DC Public Library on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you for listening.